0: All right. So the religious leaders in Jerusalem have come up against Jesus. And they were livid after he shut down temple operations. And representatives of the leadership approached him. And he basically shut them down. And so, in their own seething, plotting way, they sent wave after wave of representatives of theirs against him. And Jesus has been more than their match. He shut them down at every turn. They think that they can outsmart or outwit or outmaneuver Jesus, but they fail to reckon with the idea that Jesus is their maker, and so they literally met their maker. When you come against Jesus, you come against one who cannot be outwitted, who cannot be outsmarted, There's no one smarter, no one wiser, no one more in tune with what you are thinking. There's no one more powerful, no one more gentle, yet no one more ferocious than our Lord. They came to do battle against Jesus, and they lost. At the end of verse 34, it says, No one dared ask him any more questions. The word dared, no one dared to do this, implies a degree of trepidation and fear on their part. He had truly put them in their place. But yet, in verse 35, Jesus isn't done with them. It's as if to say they're ready to tap out, and Jesus is saying, We're not done. I got you for three minutes of playtime. You see, they messed with the bull, and so now they're going to get the horns. Jesus wants them to be thoroughly put in their place. And so he's doing here what coaches of a losing team hate. He's running up the score. Okay? 35, verse 35 in the Greek actually has a word that connects it to the previous verse in a way that your translation doesn't show. The Greek actually has the word answered. The old translation, the King James or the New King James, and I think a couple others, translates the answered in their translation of that verse. But most translations simply don't translate that word. It's there in the Greek, but they don't translate it into English, and the logic is, verse 34 says, no one asks him any more questions, so the assumption is that by saying he answered, by saying to them as he taught, that it's simply emphasizing and underscoring the, the, the poignancy with which he spoke. But I don't think that's what's happening. I think that the The author, Mark, knew what he was doing and the translators of the King James did it right to translate that word answered into their text because Jesus is responding to their silence. They are stunned at what Jesus has said and there's nothing left for them to say. But now it's Jesus' turn. So in response to their silence, Jesus continues. He wants to challenge their conceptions. About some very important things. You see, many times in life, because we can only view from the human vantage point, we think that we know what is impressive, what is true, what is good. We think we can identify spiritual. We think we can identify pious. We think we can identify right with God. We think we can identify what's important. And all too often, those attitudes and perceptions are shaped simply by outward appearance and behavior. You may say, well, we're temporal creatures. That's all we can go by. Well, Jesus wants us to dial back, pull back the curtain a little bit, and take a look at what's really going on. You see, sometimes what you think is real isn't. Sometimes what you think is is important isn't I remember in the 1980s when transformers came out now they've been out what 30 40 years now it's no big deal they're everywhere and but when they came out in the 80s I mean it was cool here's a car that turns into a robot or was it a robot that turns into a car Our little six-year-old minds were blown. It truly was more than meets the eye. Because no matter what you thought it was, there was something else involved there. It was greater than it originally appeared to be. Now, for us to live as faithful disciples and residents and citizens of the kingdom of God, it is imperative that we learn how to think heavenly and we learn to look at circumstances and behaviors and see them at a greater depth or a grander truth, we've got to realize that many times in life there's more than meets the eye. Sometimes what you see happening on a straightforward plane isn't really the big deal. And there's maybe something deeper going on that is the big deal. And it takes spiritual acuity and perception to see it. Now remember, Mark was writing this book to people who were being persecuted. And he wants to drive home the issue of who do you say Jesus is? And if you say that Jesus is Lord, and if you say that he is God incarnate, and if you say that he has atoned for your sins and brought you into right relationship with God and give you, given you an inheritance that cannot perish then you have to interpret your surroundings and your circumstances through that reality. And so when Caesar is coming against you, when Caesar is locking you away and taking away your rights, instead of just fuming and being mad, you look at the grander reality of what's going on. When hardship and heartache and troubles and trials come your way, instead of just hanging your head and moping and moaning, you think, there's something greater going on here. Now, Jesus wants to drive home this point that there's something greater going on, and he does so within the context of really sticking it to the religious leadership. And he identifies, first of all, a fundamental misconception that many have, and that is the identity of the Messiah. In verses 35 to 37, he asks about the scribes. He responds to their stunned silence. And he says, how can these people say that the Messiah is the son of David when David calls him Lord? He poses a riddle to poke them. You see, the truth that the Messiah is the son of David, a of David, is well established in Scripture. Okay, Numerous passages in the Old Testament talk about the coming son of David. Matthew 1.1 begins by calling Jesus the son of David. Within the Gospel of Mark, the, the Syrophoenician a woman refers to Jesus as son of David. Blind Bartimaeus identifies Jesus as the son of David. Okay, so what he's not doing here is somehow rejecting the notion that the Messiah comes from David. But you see, their problem was was that they perceived that the Messiah would simply be a descendant of David. He would be a chip off the old block. So what was David? A great military leader king. He subjugated the enemies. He established righteousness. He brought the ark into Jerusalem. No, he didn't get to build the temple, but he drew the plans for it. Oh, it was a great, great king. He also knew how to play the, the harp and the lyre, and he knew how to write some tunes, so he was like, a, like, a, he was like a, a rock and roll king, okay? But they loved it, and they thought that's what the Messiah would be. And they thought their enemies would simply be those who were godless among them and those foreign powers. You see, they had too myopic a view of who the Messiah would be. Their fundamental assumptions about what they needed saving from, who they needed to be saved from, made it so that way when Jesus came on the scene, they literally could not see him and rightly identify him as the Messiah. So many times we suffer from the same thing, where we operate out of this paradigm, and we have these assumptions that make it so we can't see the reality of what's going on around us. They saw the hand of God at work. Every time Jesus did a miracle, they saw the hand of God, and they utterly missed it. And of course they would miss it, because as Jesus points out here, the truth that the Messiah is someone more, not less, more than the Son of David was right under their nose the whole time. Psalm 110, which is what Jesus quotes here, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. 33 times it is referenced in regards to Jesus in the New Testament. This passage is a big deal because it establishes that the Messiah is David's Lord. And that's what Jesus is trying to push upon these people to think. Think, people, you who know the Bible so well. If the Messiah is simply David's descendant, then why on earth is David calling him Adonai, Lord God? There's more than meets the eye about the Messiah. And their whole notion of the problem was so parochial and limited. They thought they needed saving from Rome and those godless Herodians. But Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand until all your enemies are put under your feet. Those are some of the enemies. But the greater enemies are sin, the devil, death itself. Who's going to conquer that for you? A king? How's he going to do that? As long as sin remains in the heart of people, you're never going to have this utopia you want, you Pharisees, you scribes. You see, your enemies haven't been defeated until sin itself is defeated. And you think a mere mortal is going to do this? Think, people. David calls him Lord. He's more... meets the eye. And the grand reality is that the God-man had appeared among them. He came to not only be a light to the Jews, but a beacon to the Gentiles. As we learn in Isaiah 49.6, God says, "It's, it's too easy. Saving my people Israel alone is, is too small a thing. In the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's light. It's, it's, it's too insignificant and weightless a matter. No, I'm going to have you be a beacon to the Gentiles so that my salvation will extend to the ends of the earth. How often are we like the scribes here Where we operate out of a paradigm that is so tunnel visioned that all we're thinking about is this near-term, short-term, parochial, localized, I don't want to just say nationalistic, because sometimes our concern is simply our own family. And we forget that God's perspective is taking care of one little thing, that's too small of a matter. No, he's a God of big things, and he's doing a big thing in the world, and a big task requires a big savior. And he's up to something. And so God sent his son to be the son of David, yet still fully his son to accomplish the redemption of all his people. Not only the Jew, but the Gentile as well. So I think Romans 1, 1-4 uh, really drives home the biblical summary of who Jesus was. When it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. We just read one of those prophecies, Isaiah 49, 6. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? So the God-man is dwelling among them. And people, if you're going to understand who Jesus is, you've got to understand him as fully God and fully man. And they missed it all. Because their perceptions were so short-sighted. How often do our short-sighted perceptions cause us to miss Not only who God is, not only what God's Word says, but what God is doing around us. Jesus has come, and he's reigning now until every enemy submits to him. So never fear. You serve a Lord who is conquering your every foe. Your diseases, your hurts, the frailties and infirmities of age, The temptations that come to you from the devil and the world and even your corrupted flesh, they're all going to be subdued to him. But they wouldn't see it. Will you see it? Or will you just operate out of a perspective that Jesus is here to help you have a happy life right now? He wants to do something greater, not less than. The second thing that Jesus wants us to be made aware of, is that all too often in terms of our understanding of what is spiritually important, what is spiritually true and great and significant in the kingdom, flies in the face of what we perceive on a humanly earthly level. Specifically here, he gives us the example of the scribes on the one hand and this poor old widow on the other. You see, for us, the scribes are villains, when we hear scribes and Pharisees, we think, you know, boo, we want to throw tomatoes or something. But they were the, they were the superheroes of the day. I mean, they, these were the heroes. These were the heavy hitters. These were the people that everybody looked up to. And so if, you, if Jesus had brought a, uh, a scribe and stood him there in all of his attire, in all of his garb, in all of his accoutrements, He would have looked impressive to everything that they thought was important. He'd looked like the smart, intelligent, godly teacher of the law. And sure, I'm going to wager that some of them did want to study God's Word, and they were trying to be pious. But by and large, as a group, Jesus is able to describe them as being basically insincere. They loved to put on a show. They loved the perks and the prerogatives of position but not the responsibilities and duties. Instead of being the nurturers and the guiders of the people, they were essentially the parasites. And in the case of widows, they had no one. It was a culture that treats widows so much more harshly than they're treated now. And so oftentimes, what would happen is the local scribes who were the teachers of the law, they would be entrusted to manage the estates of these widows so that way the widows wouldn't truly become absolutely destitute. And yet, what Jesus is alluding to was apparently that many of the scribes would help themselves or mismanage the funds So that way, all the whatever resources they had were devoured and consumed, taking care of themselves. They feasted off the people rather than fed the people. They saw that the people existed for their good, not that they existed for the good of the people. And Jesus condemns this. And it's precisely because they look so impressive, they look so pious. They know how to say all the right things. Righteous-sounding language dripped from their tongue. And it's precisely because they had been entrusted with so much that their condemnation is going to be all that much greater. And if you're asking me if I think this means there's degrees of punishment in hell, I think so. Just as I believe there are degrees of reward in heaven, I think the teaching of scriptures is that there's degrees of punishment in hell. And these kind of gross, brazen hypocrites who have been entrusted with much are going to get the greater condemnation, as Jesus says. I'll take that as an amen. (laughs) But then on the other hand, there's this widow and there's these people giving. Now, I'm going to differ with some preachers, Some preachers are trying to assume that the rich people here are are hypocrites themselves and they're showboating their giving. No, Jesus is able to see everybody who's giving what they're giving. He sees the old lady's two cents just as well as he sees what the rich people are giving. I don't think there's anything in the text itself that questions the sincerity of anybody who's giving. But let's face it. From a humanly perspective, we're impressed by big gifts. We're impressed by people who give a lot of money. I mean, in a temporal world, it takes cold, hard cash to run the show, and people who contribute a significant proportion of that, they are to be praised. I don't think the people who were giving were doing it insincerely at all. Jesus does not condemn them. He doesn't speak against them. He's not dissing the value or the significance of what they're giving. But he does look at this little old lady who gives two cents. And she drops it in the offering plate. And he says, she's given more. You see, when Bill Gates drops a million dollars down, that's impressive. But it's easy for Bill Gates to drop down a million dollars. When you're poor and you don't have any clue where your next meal's coming from and you give out of your poverty where there's huge sacrifice in the kingdom of God's mathematics that equals massive contribution. Jesus is not saying wealthy people don't bother giving because you're not contributing nor is Jesus saying for every one of us to give all that we have so that way we can't pay for ourselves and our families. He is calling us, therefore, on the other hand, to recognize that while the world really, really, really digs, so much so that they cater to the rich folk, Jesus is saying don't underestimate the value and the importance of what even the poorest among you can do. Because in my eyes, because she gave when it was costly, that's much. And so she gave. And from the earthly perspective, it was insignificant. Two cents. No significance there at all. But in God's sight, it was awesome. Okay? Do you see how that's a value that conflicts with the value of the world that's all about recognizing massive donors, recognizing massive presence. In the world, if you want to make an impression, you show up, and you better project confidence in self. Presence, power, position, act like you're respectable, and people will treat you respectably. But in the kingdom, it's the poor, destitute, lonely old widow who's the greatest giver. What this tells me is that none of us have any excuse for walking around with our head down as if we have nothing to offer. In the kingdom, we are all valuable. We don't just cater to rich folk. Everyone who comes, if you come and give yourself, give your very life for Jesus, then, man, you're part of the inside team, and you are to be honored. And yes, we honor that. The apostle Paul himself tells us to honor people who are modeling Christ likeness. So we need to be a place, brothers and sisters, where the whether you're rich, poor, successful, or just barely making it by, where we honor and embrace as co-laborers, as, as part of the family and part of the, the team. Let's reject the world's notion that there are insignificant people and that the significant influencers and power players need to be catered to and won over to our side. I think we're fundamentally operating out of a worldly perspective when we pursue and try to curry favor with the people we think can best benefit us. Let's show Christ's love to everybody. Let's remember that sometimes there are circumstances, indeed people, who were tempted from an earthly perspective to write off as insignificant, and they just might be the most significant ones of all. Think of David the shepherd boy. The least significant of his brothers. Becomes the most mighty of kings of his age. There's often more than meets the eye in the kingdom. Will you grow in the faith and perception to see it? Let's pray.